On today's episode, we're talking about the strike that's rocking the automotive industry. We'll get into whether our pro-union president is behind this and other labor actions, and why the motto of the current auto workers union chief is, no more Mr. Nice Guy. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. We're currently in week five of the United Auto Workers Union strike against the big three U.S. car makers, Ford, GM, and Chrysler, which is now owned by the European conglomerate Stellantis. In some ways, this strike is unique in that it's being led by one of the most aggressive labor leaders we've seen in a long time, UAW President Sean Fain. But in other ways, it's not unique because we've seen many labor actions over the past few months and even before that, the past two years. Is that because of the tight labor market? or because we have in the White House someone who describes himself as the most pro-union president in history. We're going to get into that with Bloomberg Law Labor reporter Ian Culgren. I spoke to him on the afternoon of Monday, October 16th to talk about the UAW strike and about why only a few auto factories are being picketed, or at least a few auto factories so far. But first I asked Ian to tell me about the main character of this whole story, Sean Fain. To understand Sean Fain, it's important to understand some of the struggles that the UAW has faced in the last 15 years or so. In 2012, Shane gets the opportunity to take a job at the international headquarters. The way he described it to me, he was quickly disappointed because he found a lot of folks who, in his telling, were lazy, who were more interested in themselves than in serving the members. And I mean, I think he's that's sort of an understatement because the last few heads of the UAW have gotten into some uh, uh, legal troubles, some scandals involving self-dealing. So there may be uh, a lot of um, substance to what he was talking about. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, we, we talked about that in detail. It really almost resulted in an entire takeover of the union by the federal government. So certainly events support some of what he's saying, at least. But it sounds like he came in and was really wanting to be a change agent and to, you know, be a, a turnaround agent, I guess, for the UAW. And it sounds like he has succeeded in that because... Man, they uh, are taking a very aggressive new stance uh, in their dealings with the U.S. automakers here. Well, listen, Sean Fain's ideology really is that he he believes that the UAW must, in order to be successful, must be a thorn in the side and be somewhat of an antagonist to these companies. Whereas there had been this culture of at least some level of collaboration between Uh, a lot of the UAW leaders recently and the companies. They used to have this big ceremony at the start of collective bargaining where they would actually get together and shake hands and let the media take photos and everything and say, you know, we're going to work together and be. And he he, right from the outset said, no, I mean, we're we're supposed to be the counterweight to. You know, this capitalism run run amok in his yeah. mind, right? Well, and that's another theme that I've been hearing about a lot uh, as I've been reading the reporting of this strike is that, uh, you know, how often Fain doesn't show up to meetings with uh, the automakers or sort of snubs them or doesn't return their calls. It seems like he's doing this on purpose where he's kind of saying, I don't have a relationship with you. I'm not your friend. Uh, you know, I'm not your 
your collaborator, we have a hostile relationship, right? Right. I mean, certainly both sides in collective bargaining is a really it's a really delicate dance and there are a lot of mind games that are involved. So if you're the boss on either side, you don't necessarily immediately want to be sitting at the table, you know, you want to keep your powder dry, so to speak, and act like you're you're a little bit above it. So let's now get into his tactics here. You know, the strike started off with only three auto plants having workers walk off off the job, which means that you know, the majority of UAW workers are still on the job right now. Um, you know, tell me about this strategy to have a sort of partial strike and not a complete work stoppage across the whole membership. Well, in days gone by, there really never was a complete work stoppage across the whole membership because typically they would, and we saw this in 2019 when the last big strike was, longest strike in history, lasted six weeks, they would choose a strike target, right? So they would strike one of the big three. In 2019, it was General Motors. And from there, they would try to wear the company down on whatever provisions they thought were necessary in order to reach tentative agreement, and then those would be reflected through what's known as pattern bargaining with the other two. That said, there certainly were fewer people at these three plants on strike than you know the entire GM membership that was on, on strike before. So it is a rare strategy. It's a strategy that has not been used in some time. And the advantage of this, the fact that it's it's a new thing that the car companies are responding to, it's not something that they they really know how to respond to. And it's something that sort of keeps them guessing and keeps them on their toes because they don't know who is going to strike next when they ramp it up. Yeah, it really sounds like his strategy, Fane's strategy, is to say, you know, we're going to shut down uh, work at these three plants, but continue work at all the other plants. And then if you don't come to the bargaining table or if you give us an offer that we don't like, we're going to shut down more plants and we're not going to tell you which ones we're going to shut down. So you don't have time to prepare for the shutdown of these plants. It seems like it's a it, it's a way to keep ratcheting up the pressure on the companies uh, in a graduated way. It is. And it really embraces the idea that strikes are to cause actual economic disruption and cost the company money, that it's not a symbol, that it's not something that is simply designed to capture headlines, right? That he sent the message time and time again that they're they're willing to inflict real damage on these companies without flinching. Um, tell me about what led to this strike. I get the sense that there were two main things that were going on. There's complaints about executive pay at the car companies that CEOs were getting paid, you know, way too much according to the UAW, but also a transition to making electric vehicles that is actually influencing how the company's operating. Tell me about both of those those factors. Yes, certainly. Well, in a lot of ways, the UAW members' complaints are not that different than a lot of other workers that have gone on strike around the country, right? Like they have the same fundamental complaint that the CEO salaries are too high, that they have not shared in that wealth. Yeah, it seems like that could apply to any company in any industry, but I, I feel like the electric vehicle thing is pretty unique to the auto industry. Yes, yes, it certainly is. I mean, especially since you have the companies now laying down timelines for when they want to eliminate gas-powered vehicles entirely. If there's one issue in this strike that the UAW really needs to 
walk away with, it is putting those electric vehicle jobs under their master agreement. I should note that GM has agreed to to do that in some form, so that's a huge that's a huge win if it if it really stands in a tentative agreement. If they don't get a hold of those members, and if they are not able to bargain for a majority of these members, then the wages in these plants are just going to plummet compared to the traditional auto industry. And we've already seen that happening in Lordstown, Ohio, for example, where workers make $10 an hour or more less than the top scale of gas power trains. Mm, Wow. So you and our our colleague Parker Purifoy wrote a story recently about how Fain and the union are benefiting from uh, recent changes to labor laws. And also, it should be noted, a very union-friendly NLRB under the Biden administration. There was a, a something in the article where you talked about how labor members can now use profanity on picket lines where they can't they can't be fired for swearing like while they're standing outside of the the company. Right. Well, in a lot of different ways the Biden NLRB and the general counsel he chose the day he came into office when he when he fired Trump's appointee have sort of systematically taken away a lot of the technicalities where unions could get themselves in trouble for, yes, things like using profanity on a a picket line, the location where pickets can happen. All of those sorts of things have been changed to be more favorable toward unions by the NLRB. But even the issues that have not been touched yet by the NLRB they know they stand a much better chance if a company were to file a federal labor complaint against them. And so it you know, emboldens them to maybe be more aggressive in ways that they wouldn't before. And it also makes the companies less likely to file these types of complaints in the first place. Yeah. Mm. I mean, and I, I, that's why I thought that was so interesting, because it gets at the sort of broader climate that we're living in. Not just because of the NLRB, but also because of President Biden himself, who has called himself, whether this is accurate or not, the most pro-labor president in history. I have to imagine that that's part of why we're seeing not just the strike at the UAW, but so many strikes just this summer and over the last two years. Like That has to be one of the factors why unions are being so much more aggressive and active right now. One of the useful tools of having an administration this outspoken is that it is essentially free publicity for these unions, right? And it gets people thinking about it in a way they didn't before. That that said, none of this union agitation is going to work if there aren't underlying economic conditions that unions feel they can highlight or, if you really don't like unions, exploit to get people all riled up and get them to walk off the job. Nobody wants to walk off the job, especially for any period of time. These UAW workers have been living on $500 a week strike pay since September 14th. I mean, that is not easy to do, and they're not going to do it unless they believe they can get something tangible out of it for themselves and their families now. Is what you're saying essentially that, you know, because the labor market itself is so hot, you know, the unemployment rate has been 
very, very low now for a long time, ever since the, the pandemic. That's another reason, maybe an even bigger reason than President Biden being in the office. Absolutely. I mean, people's views are shaped by the economic conditions and the world in which they live. You know, a worker trying to get a job or just miraculously getting a job in the wake of the recession, like coming out of college, getting, you know, getting their first job, something along those lines, they're not going to be eager to, you know, quiet, quit, to walk off the job, to, use their leverage because they don't have leverage or certainly they don't feel like they have leverage. These workers feel like they have leverage. Finally, I'm going to ask you a very unfair question that's not really answerable, but uh, I'm going to ask you how this is going to play out. Let's break out the crystal ball here. Um, You know, do you see this ending in a couple days, a couple weeks, or do you see this going on for many more weeks, maybe even months, maybe even into next year? Well, we are reaching a point that feels like it could be a tipping point or it could lead to some intractable impasse that makes this go on a lot longer. What do you mean by that? Why do you think we're, we're nearing there? Well, just today, Bill Ford, a descendant of the Henry Ford and the executive chairman of Ford Motor Company, came out personally and said, this acrimonious strike needs to be over. You guys have got to stand down. You've got to reach some sort of agreement. And this is coming just after the company said that it has proposed its last offer, its last and best offer for wages, and that any any additional concessions they make could truly hurt the company. Whether or not you believe that, of course, is is a different question, but it is signaling that folks are really starting to lay down the law here and say, this is it. And when that starts happening, it's really difficult to go back from that. I see what you mean. So in other words, you know, if Sean Fain and the UAW don't accept the current offer that's on the table, it sounds like we could be in for a very long strike where maybe there aren't even talks going on. There's just, you know, weeks go by where nothing really happens. Right. And that is kind of the worst case scenario for the union, because meanwhile, they're draining their strike fund. Their members are getting worn out. And, you know, there really is only so much people can take. I don't think they will fold easily, but at some point you have to. Yeah. Uh, What a gamble for the the unions and for the, the automakers as well. I mean, this is you know, as you mentioned, there's all kinds of mind games that go on whenever there's a strike like this, and it sounds like things are getting pretty intense here. I will say this may not be of comfort to their current members, which is why they need to get more. But even if the UAW agreed to what was on the table now and got every company to sign on to these EV agreements, that alone would be a huge win. I mean, because what they're battling over right now is really whether auto jobs for the next century or more in the United States are going to continue to be union jobs and be pathways to the middle class and be everything you think of when you think about auto jobs. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, Ian Colgren uh, will be following that over the next century uh, or so. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Thank you for joining us. Uh, Thank you. Really interesting. Thanks. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor today was Cheryl Sines, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week. 
On Uncommon Law, we've covered a lot of topics. Non-compete clauses, affirmative action, the trial of Derek Chauvin, the bar exam, and who could forget the business of bees? I also remember the bees. But there's one thing we've never talked about. Haunted houses. In honor of Halloween, we present to you a very scary episode of Uncommon Law. So turn off the lights and prepare to be terrified by the justice system. And hey, maybe even learn a little something along the way. I'm your host, Matthew Schwartz, and this is Uncommon Law, Halloween edition. Ooh. Coming soon from Bloomberg Industry Group.